listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Rachel Sensenig. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Julie Hoke. I use she, her pronouns, too. And a happy, happy, happy Advent to both of you. Advent's the season of waiting for Jesus' birth. And it's also the season of crinkle cookies and Christmas carols and tinsel and Christmas decorations. And, all and sorts you've of been fun listening stuff. to those Christmas songs for a few weeks now, John. My reputation you? precedes me, yes. <laughs> I listen to it so much that it, on my. I, I use Apple Music. My, five of the top. The, two of the f- top five playlists that I listen to are Christmas songs for the whole year. I just want you to, like, like it's wow. already become top five material. So what is, what's your favorite Christmas song? We can go, I like to categorize them as, like, godless and then, like, not godless. <laughs> I have an answer for this. Oh, Holy Night is hands down my favorite mm. Christmas song. It's your favorite, it's a great Christmas song. We sing it. It's always in our Christmas Eve observance, right? Mm-hmm. The Christmas Near Eve the vigil. Yep. I I love how it starts out with the stars in the sky, the wonder of the stars, and ends with. It's a good abolition song. Justice yeah. on the earth. Yeah. So let me ask. So what do you have a favorite not Christian or God oriented Christmas song? I I don't know. Come back to me on that one. It's not the Italian Christmas donkey. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, it, it would be anything sung by Andrea Bocelli, though. If we're gonna talk Italian, okay, I okay. love so, like, his what's voice. What? Um, oh, he does the Lord's Prayer. Um, oh gosh, he does what child is this? They, they're all Christian, okay, Johnny. Well, all the okay. ones I love are Christian. <laughs> I'm Christmas sorry. Christmas carols over there. How about you, Julie? Frosty Rudolph. What is it? Oh, no. I mean, I have to say that I when I turned the radio on before Thanksgiving and they were playing Christmas music, I couldn't handle it. I have to turn it off. I can't. I have to, like, I have to contain <laughs> the, the, the preparation. You turn off Mariah Carey? <clears throat> before Thanksgiving, absolutely. It can, only, it can only start after. <laughs> um, Once I the don't. turkey is digesting, you can listen to Christmas music. Is that your viewpoint? Mm. And the day after, the whole day after. Oh, wow. So you don't yeah. even put on like a Christmas movie at Thanksgiving. No. Nope. Oh. It's been our tradition to put a tree up the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And that's when it starts. That's, I me. mean, I hear, I, 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 I do that just because the tree will die, will wither away if I do it too early. But I'm on team real tree, not artificial tree. But I'm also on team early Christmas. So, like, I have mixed. <laughs> I, I could buy two trees. They conflict. <laughs> I guess the answer, you could buy two. Well, when do you start with the Christmas music, Johnny? November 1st. Halloween, done, boom. Wow. Haul out the holly, you know? <laughs> and I what's your favorite? I want a whole sixth of the year. Oh, my word. Committed to Christmas. My favorite Christmas song that's, like, we would sing in a worship setting is... Hark the Herald, mm, and yes. I think that's one of the. I think that's one of the my favorite songs. However, mm. I do sing Silent Night every night for the entire year because that's oh, the song that's I right. use to put my kids to bed. Mm. I sing. Mm-hmm. I sing just three verses, 
sometimes just one, depending on how it's all going. Sometimes I get interrupted in the middle and say, no, we're going to bed. Get out of here. So I do that. I love Silent Night. Sweet. I love O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is really an Advent song. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know? And then my favorite non-worship Christmas song, I have so many that I like. I love Blue Christmas. I love Baby It's Cold Outside. I know it's canceled, <laughs> but I love it. Controversial. <laughs> Very problematic. <laughs> There's a John Legend version where it isn't problematic. Oh. Where he's like, yeah, go ahead, do your thing. You don't need to leave, I feel you. You know? It's nice. And he has such a great voice, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Santa Baby is, is one that I heard this year, and I was like, wow, this is like, this is... Santa Baby's awful. This it's, is very questionable. No, no, Santa Baby, <laughs> like, I'm fine, like, with it in the Christmas party mix, but, like, it's not, you can't... No one's clicking Santa Baby, you know what I mean? Like, if it's on, it's on, and you just, like, get through it. Uh Um, But my favorite is, I love the Carpenters, um, and Merry Christmas, Darling. I really love that song. I don't Um, think I know that one. Greeting cards have all been sent. You don't know that one? The Christmas rush is through. Actually, I do recognize it as you sing it. And I love Karen Carpenter so much. What a gift she was to us. And she has such a tragic story, too. Mm. You know? Um, And I get all sentimental about it. You know, like, I do think back to, like, yeah, the late 70s, 1980s, who Karen Carpenter was, this great voice. She suffered with an eating disorder and then recovered. Mm. But then when she was hospitalized, and then she died because her body couldn't handle the food. The oh, like so it's I didn't like know this. it's terrible. It's a it's an awful story. It's really sad. So I'm definitely listening to that song in, in the spirit of her yearning for life. Um mm-hmm. so like even the non spiritual songs have a little spiritual element to them too, to me. Mm. Oh, you know. Yes. Johnny, when I have an image of you. I also like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and mm. I love when we get to that part together every year. I, I, I can see you like raising your arm in, in joy when we sing Adam's image, now he faced. Oh, have thine line. image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. That's my favorite part. You can't mm. sing Hark the Herald without becoming a Christian at the end of it, if you ask me. Like, that's the old Charles Wesley way is, like, so good. I love it. Mm. I have memories with all these songs, too, but I have to be honest, I wouldn't say I have, like, a favorite song. I think it happens differently for me each year based on Mm. what I'm living and what's connecting to me and how I receive the song. Um in the moment and this year i was introduced to a hymn that i i don't know that i've ever heard before and if i did it it like you know just kind of went past me comfort comfort ye my people it's so beautiful it's it's um isaiah's prophecy Mm -hmm. um in isaiah 40 yes um and it is 
I heard a beautiful rendition of it um, with strings, cello, violin, and I just kept listening to it on repeat. So mm-hmm. this year, I would say that's my favorite um, carol, hymn, whatever. Um, but it does change every year. And as far as um, other songs, I'm not sure. We have like traditional c- CDs. We still listen to Christmas music on CD in our house because we have nice. these old CDs. I love Sufjan Stevens' Christmas music. I love, um, um, oh my word, now I'm forgetting the name. Mm, this is terrible recording. Sorry. I, I, I can't even remember. We just cycle through the same CDs for the whole season. Um, I love Sufjan, though. Mm-hmm. He does well, come that long expected Jesus, right? And mm-hmm. Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Mm-hmm. Mm, those are good. I yeah, love those, those songs. Prophecies, yes. Mm-hmm. Advent needs to be longer because we need to get, or you could extend the Christmas season, which I think is appropriate, like to keep the Christmas going in January. But the problem is in U.S. culture, you get so, like, you drink so much eggnog, basically, that you can't have more eggnog in January. Like, it's just ridiculous. Totally. Like, you just get sick of the, they just, because <laughs> the, the marketers really want all all of it's leading up to the big consumptive day and then it's done. There's no like, you have no appetite for it afterwards, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I do, I partic- like I, I start November 1st, great. And I do participate in the, you know, cultural aspects of Christmas and have no religious scruples with that. I think it's fine. However, I do believe that Advent, anticipation, Christmas and then celebration following the birth is the ideal way to experience the season. But it's just not how it works. So mm. I can't orient the culture around it. I would like to continue Christmas into January, but <laughs> I don't think it's possible. Well, we might be able to, Johnny, like this continue the spirit of incarnation i i think julie i think one of the gifts that julie brings us is this like being in the moment and um we that's something that we could keep doing is we, to we be should. present in in the moment in our bodies in what I, what is actually happening this year mm. at this time but can um, I sing low how an rose air blooming in on like January twenty first? <laughs> I think you so. Sing, you sing Silent Night all year round. Right. No, exactly. Right. That's right. Right. We, uh, I, I. Can we close with the words to that to the beginning of Isaiah forty? Um, yeah, go ahead. This is good. Yeah, I love that you reminded us of that, Julie, because that's that's the prophecy of John the Baptist too and we we talked about we all talked about him in our meetings this week Um, but here's one version of how that chapter starts out comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to them and proclaim that their hard service has been completed and their sin has been paid for Listen to the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough grounds will become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Amen. 
Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We want you to be a part of our community. And, away, and, and you know, by the way, our listeners went up. We have loyal, enthusiastic people. People are listening to our show. We know that, but we really do want to hear from you. Like on our Spotify wrapped, all of our stats went up. And you can go um, to our Instagram account, circleofhope.net is our Instagram account. And you can see those stats if you're interested. And we'll link them in the show notes too. So we're doing well. We're excited about that. But we want to hear from you. So email us at resistorestorepodcast at circleofhope.net about this week's episode with Drick Boyd coming up or... Uh, with Andre last week. There's a lot of cool people that we're talking to. And of course, what the pastors contribute as well, should, uh, whether it's nourishing our soul or whether we're responding um, to talk back, there's a lot of things that you can engage with. So I hope that you will. And keep helping us get listeners. So we want to expand our audience because we're looking for people who are looking for us. You know, and someone actually came to a Sunday meeting because they listened to this podcast. So... That's not so bad. That's pretty cool. So if you know people like that, email them the podcast, share it with them directly. Um, But then also give us a high rating wherever you listen and subscribe to our podcast too. And you can share money with us too at circleofhope.church. So there's a lot of ways you can connect. We want you to be a part of our body, especially during this Advent season. So peace to you. Hey friends, I'm excited to have Drick Boyd on our show with us. He wrote Disrupting Whiteness, Talking with White People About Racism. It's a great book that's not religious, but real practical. But Drick is religious. He's a former Baptist pastor and a professor emeritus at Eastern University in urban and interdisciplinary studies. And he taught at Eastern for over 20 years. He is an Anabaptist like me. And it's fun to have conversations with like-minded people about the issues that face us, including anti-racism and how we talk about it with white people. Welcome to our show, Drick. Thanks for having me. Tell us why you needed to write Disrupting Whiteness, especially after you witnessed the events in Charlottesville in 2017. Well, uh, at the time, I was teaching a course on race and ethnic relations in the fall of that year. I taught it every fall. Um, And the students in that class, as well as people from my church and just other people who knew that I had done a lot of thinking, a lot of writing on issues of race, kept saying, I don't know how to talk to my friends. I don't know how to talk to my family. I don't know how to talk to the people I work with, the white people I work with, uh, about what's going on and what has gone on. And so I'm a blogger. So I started um, blogging some questions that people were asking me. And eventually those blogs uh, turned into a book. The interesting thing, it took me three years to write the book. And I started in fall of 2017 and I finished the manuscript in the spring of 2020, two weeks before George Floyd was murdered. And that event said, okay, I'm not done. So then I had to go back and work a little bit more on it. Uh, and finished it somewhere in the fall of 2020. And then two weeks before the book was released, now it's in production, right? <laughs> so I, there's no going back. Two weeks before it was released at the end of January 2021, we had January 6th. Wow. And so the book, in some ways, in my mind, is incomplete, but um, it was sort of framed by Charlottesville, 
and George Floyd's death in many ways. If you could have spoken to January 6th in the book, what would you what what, what would you have added? Uh, I've been trying to figure that out since that book came out, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. After January 6th, I wrote three friends of mine who I knew were strong Trump supporters. And I asked the question, how do you interpret the events that, that occurred on January 6th? And the answers I got back were so bizarre that I realized I was I was dealing with something that I hadn't really given much thought to, that there could be a totally different perception of reality um, fueled by racism and fueled by fear that, to be honest, since the book has come out, largely in my blogging, I've been trying to figure out how to speak to that. And I think at this point, the thing that stands out the most to me is um, the need to not back down from the truth mm. and the facts. And, you know, this is particularly difficult because a lot of the people who are following, you know, uh, the, what I, what's called the big lie are also Christians. And so it, it really becomes an issue of even how we think about our faith, how we think about Jesus and totally. what, it, what, what he's called us to be and do in this world. So, um, it's an ongoing project, to be honest. It sounds like another book. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean to be a recovering racist? I use that language, uh, use that phrase to describe myself because I grew up in an all-white community, um, uh, an upper middle class, all-white community outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I was socialized into a way of thinking and being that said that because if I worked hard, and I would just, you know, did the right things, I could succeed. And that any and, and the assumption was anybody could succeed. And when I got into early adulthood and began learning more about the history of racism and what racism was, I realized that that was just uh, not true, that they, there was not an evil playing field for everybody. And I also realized that I had been, born, in a sense, born into um this addiction to whiteness, you know, I was sort of like a, a, a baby whose mother, you know, was addicted before the child was born. And so the right. child was born addicted. And, and so, and, and another, at another point in my life, I was, a, I was a chaplain at a recovery center where I worked with people who worked doing the 12 steps and in, in the 12 step movement, they never say they're recovered. They never say they're cured of alcoholism or drug abuse. They always say they're recovering. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that to be a helpful reminder that um, contending with racism in the world and in myself and how I interact is a lifelong project. And right. so I never say I'm I'm not a racist. I'm saying I'm a recovering racist, which when I when I've spoken sometimes causes people to what he's admitting, admitting he's a racist. Um, it opens up possibilities for mm. conversation. Because, you know, we're so scared of that word racist. White people are so scared of that word racist being attached to them when, in fact, it, truly, we're born into it. That's true. And that makes total sense to me. One of the ways you talk about even coming to understand that is by telling our race story. And this is, I think, applies to white people and people of color. Um, and w- later on, you'll talk about even 
in talking to white people, helping them tell their story helps them to understand racism. Um, why is that the case? Well, that's a, it's an, actually an exercise I've used when I've done workshops with groups. And the reason I, I use it is because white people in particular are so afraid of talking about race or even saying the word race or racism. Um, it's, and so to kind of desensitize, to, to lower the sensitivity to it, I, I, the, the exercise, and it, didn't be, it wasn't invented by me, I'm borrowing that from someone else, gets people to think about the ways in which they were, they were, they were taught about racism, what they were told as, as, as children, what they saw in their house, what were the messages they, they got from their, the significant others in their school or in their home. Right. And, and think about all the ways in which unknowingly they were already being socialized into a particular way of thinking about race. And, you know, it affects people of color differently than it does um, white people. For white people, it's like, oh, I never thought about it. For a lot of people of color, there's a lot of hurt and anger that just kind of gets unearthed when they realize at a young age, you know, they were called the N-word or uh, something happened to someone significant in their lives because of uh, their skin color. And so uh, it's a way of kind of opening up the conversation. I think that's great. Um, we talk a lot about race being a social construct. And one of the ways that you draw this connection is, and this is super interesting to me because I just want to say, like, I'm a big Eagles fan. You know, same here. I same here, same here. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I'm, this is, this might be cut from the podcast, but I just want to say that this team we're watching is better than the 2017 team. Yeah, I agree. And I, I believe that. And that's quite a statement. Um, I'm very impressed by them. So it's very, it's very exciting to me. Yeah. Last Sunday was proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. We beat a real good team and we, we made them look not that good. Right. You know, losing to Washington was kind of painful, but yeah, well, we'll just let that one go. <laughs> had to come. They fell asleep that day, I think. Yeah. I think they really underestimated their opponent. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Um, anyway, how is, but like for me, I'm an Eagles fan and I bleed green, you know? Um, and I also, when I see, I love when I'm traveling uh, around the country or even internationally, and I see someone with a Phillies or an Eagles hat, it feels like kinship. Mm -hmm. um, so in some way, but, and I also have that feeling when I meet another Egyptian, because I'm an Egyptian American, an Arab American. Um, so I can see those connections, but I definitely have a different relationship with my fandom than I do my race. My race feels more uh, real, if you will. Can you talk about how it is similar though? Yeah, I was, you know, in, in, uh, well, first of all, I guess in, in uh, using the example of an Eagles fan as, as a social construct, I, I'm, I'm in no way trying to equate it with right. the, the impact of race, but, you know, the, the idea of a social construct is that the differences that we perceive uh, between ourselves and others, or the similarities we perceive between ourselves and others is not genetically or biologically based. It's something that we as a society have created. And, you know, if you took a, an Eagles fan and a Dallas fan and you did a, and, and you looked at their genetics, you could not tell which one was which based on their biology. 
And it's actually the same thing with race. They've, they've actually done studies at the genetic level, and they find that within races, there's more diversity than between races. And, and the reason this is important is for over 500 years, European anthropologists, scientists, eugenists were trying to prove that white people were physically, genetically superior to people of other races. And, and that's just not true. And people tend to think, even today, us that because one person is black, another person is brown, another person is white, they are somehow different at a, at a very deep level, when in fact, it's, it's, it's something we created uh, to justify our injustice. And when we start talking about the social construct of race, there's a, you know, there's a 500 year history of discrimination and oppression and Jim Crow and slavery and all the rest that has used that construct to diminish and demean and oppress people. And not, on, not only not only in North America, not only in Mexico, but around the world. Totally. And to add to your analogy, you know, I mean, this is inappropriate, but I will say, it. you know, the national media definitely portrays Eagles fans in a certain way, too. So right. there is, there is, there is, it's so interesting that how social constructs work. Yeah. Or I certainly think of Dallas Cowboys fans in a certain way as well, I have Same. to admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, you really break down racism into helpful categories that we understand. Internalized racism, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, and systemic racism. I think that probably most known to our audience and to people in general is what interpersonal racism is, right? Um, where I hold a conscious over prejudice and I articulate, I share it. Um, like when I was made fun of growing up for the culture I had or the background I had or the skin color I had. Um, can you talk more about what internalized racism is and then even go into institutional and systemic, especially with institutional and systemic, because I've often conflated those two ideas. So what's internalized racism? Well, internalized racism is when you, when it, it manifests itself in different ways between people in the dominant race and those you know, who are in other races. But in whites, internalized racism is, is where I begin to think and feel, where I think and feel myself to be better than those people of other races. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, part, I'm a part of a group called Roots of Justice, and we talk about internalized racist superiority, uh, in which uh, I just think of myself as better than, and that, that can be both in a negative and positive sense, in the sense that even people who are committed to racial, white people who are committed to racial justice often think of themselves as going to help those poor people. And that is a form of in, internalized racial superiority. Um, a lot of missionary work around the world kind of went with that same mentality. Internalized racism for persons of color is where I internalize the negative messages about people who look like me. Uh, and, and so you, and, and I think right now, one of the clearest manifestations in our city is how young black men are killing other young black men. Mm -hmm. um, that they see people who look like them as somehow a threat, as somehow uh, someone to be uh, 
eradicated. And and it, it manifests itself in uh, all kinds of self abuse, forms of self abuse, whether it's addiction, whether it's you know depression, whether it's um, turning on people in their own families, um, domestic violence, those sort of things. Uh, I if I am internalizing that oppression, that racism, I I am turning it on myself uh, in a way that's totally. self destructive. Uh, now, institutional and systemic racism, I mean, it's easy to conflate them. The way I distinguish them <clears throat> is institutional racism is uh, an organization whose policies, practices, uh, hiring, you know, hiring practices, how they operate uh, disproportionately um, excludes or hurts persons of color. Um, and often what's so hideous about uh, institutional racism is that it's just the way this, the organization works. So people just don't, don't see it as it's just the way it is. They don't see it as being somehow destructive. So you have teachers who teach in our public schools who are given curriculums that don't uh, to teach that don't include the history, for instance, of other racial and ethnic groups who make up our society. Uh, they they are these students these students of color are often tracked at 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 lower levels uh, of academic rigor, uh, even though they may be capable of doing more. Mm. That's an inst- that's an institutional form of racism. Systemic is where you know systems are, are, are a collection of institutions. So we can talk about the criminal justice system, right? Courts. Uh, DAs, prisons, all of that. That's a system. We can talk about the healthcare system. We can talk about the educational system. So systemic racism where that same practice is is seen throughout a whole network of <clears throat> institutions that are connected to each other because they, they serve a certain purpose. And I think, you know, the best example from the time of the uh, pandemic was how our healthcare system uh, does not serve persons of color in the same way it, it serves uh, white people. And so you had higher death rates and higher sickness rates uh, and people not going to their doctors because they didn't trust them. So, um, so that's, that's the distinction I make there. Excellent. I really appreciate that. I think that's helpful for our people. One of the best things you wrote, one of my favorite things that you said was, yes, racism is about making sure that BIPOC aren't harmed. But white people need to basically grapple with whiteness in order to confront racism. It's not enough to make sure that BIPOC aren't harmed. White people need to realize the impact that they have via their whiteness. Um, Why is that so important? Well, um, on a very practical level, I think one one of the things that was not accomplished in significant number and it had a significant impact on the civil rights movement was we didn't change the way people related to each other. We changed a lot of laws and laws, as we found out in more recent years, can be changed. So we had a voting rights law that now has been basically tanked. We have had, we had affirmative action laws that now are being wiped away. Uh, and, and so whiteness is I think of whiteness as sort of a culture that white people live in and, and are shaped by. And it impacts their behavior, it impacts the way they think, it's, it impacts their attitudes to other people. And it causes them and the institutions that they're a part of to act in a way 
that is harmful to BIPOC folks. Uh, but it's also creating a society where people are, are not regarded or treated in the same way. And many white people, I think, are trapped in this. I mean, in, you know, in other parts of the book, I talk about how, how racism hurts white people. And, and this is, and, and whiteness is not, while it's in some ways advantages white people, it also diminishes their humanity. Um, totally. Yes. And, and so, um, and, and frankly, you know, uh, Richard Wright had a famous quote where he's, he was asked, you know, how this, he, he lived in the, you know, and he was, this is like right after world war II, he was asked, you know, how do you think we're going to solve the Negro problem in America? Mm-hmm. And he said, there isn't a Negro problem. That's right. There's a white problem. This problem that we're talking about racism is a white problem. And it's why I've sort of zeroed in on how do we interact with white folks on this? Not to the exclusion of people of color, but because people like me who look like me consciously and unconsciously are, are perpetuating this. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, you talk about how whiteness can even result in trauma um, for white people as well. You know, and I, I want to, and you just addressed that there, but I want you to unpack that a little bit, you know, because I think some people, I don't think this is a conscious thought among white people. The idea that like, I'm not going to be anti-racist because what benefit does it give me? But how does racism harm white people, even when it purportedly gives them power and privilege and so on? Well, I'll speak to the trauma issue first, and then I'll answer to the second question. Um, Reisman Menachem, who wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands, it's an outstanding book. I encourage anybody concerned about this issue uh, to, to read it. And he talks about white body supremacy complex, which is uh, a source of trauma for both BIPOC folks and for white people. Now, in, in terms of particularly African-Americans, there's been a lot of work done on what is called intergenerational trauma uh, and histo- or sometimes called historic trauma, where literally from gener- to gener- generation to generation, the, genet- the genes of people who have experienced trauma are changed so that the descendants of those people who may were favorite were enslaved are, are ex- experience trauma that comes from two or three generations before. Many white people who came to this country, many European people who came to this country came because they were escaping trauma. Very interesting that, you know, England, when it was sending people over, you know, there were people who had like the Jamestown and that that sort of thing, or the Puritans, they were given sort of plots of land, but particularly the English, they, they cleared their prisons, they cleared their streets of all these people who were who were poor and struggling and on the edge of life and put them on a boat and sent them over here. Mm. Um, and, and so all these white people who were traumatized landed here as well. Totally. So that's, that's one, that's one source. But the other thing is there's something called perpetrator trauma. And there's been a, there's been a fair amount of research on uh, Nazi Germany and how the attempt to exterminate the Jews impacted the German people even today. And so white people have inherited these sources of trauma. And this is a, you know, 
this is a very sort of new sort of look into the effect of trauma. So there's probably still a lot more that can be learned uh, in the years to come. But how it manifests itself, first of all, is, is just how skittish uh, white people can get when the topic of race comes up. And I think, you know, in recent in the last couple of years, we've really seen it in extreme where people are going crazy at school board meetings because their kids are reading the 1619 project mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're saying, we don't want critical race theory in our elementary schools. And there isn't critical race theory in their elementary schools. That's not something that's taught at that level. Um, and they're banning books and they're firing teachers and they're threatening school board members because they're trying to <laughs> give a curriculum that is reflective of the whole society. And to me, those kind of reactions are a sign of trauma. And the other way trauma again gets acted out is we act it out on others. Mm. So some of these, some of these, uh, mm. you know, shootings at shopping malls or schools um, are, I think, also an outgrowth of trauma. Yes, maybe there's mental illness, but in the air amongst all white people, there's this trauma that we deal with. Uh, and haven't really named. And so we can't really deal with it because we haven't owned up to it. That's really powerful. And I hope that we can, we know white people listening can be conscious about how racism hurts them. And maybe that can even be a motivating reason to address whiteness because it doesn't only affect people of color, it affects all of us. Um, You say that there are times where the only option we have is to call out white peers for their racism and their action. And and later on you say when it's over well, like when it's overt racism. You there's no cuz you'll talk about you have a whole method for how to relate and talk to people. But when the violent rhetoric is so overt, you have to confront it directly. But so like when when is that sort of confrontation not the best tool to use? Well, the, the main sort of approach I take in this book uh, is something actually that I, I learned being part of a group here in Philadelphia called NUCOR. NUCOR stands for New Conversations on Race and Ethnicity. And it was actually formed by a group of African-American ministers and Jewish rabbis about, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, and point of it was to to the purpose was to facilitate conversations across race where people could tell their stories. And I've been a part of NUCOR, not since the beginning, but probably for at least 10 years. Uh, and we meet on the first Thursday of every month and we talk about what's going on in our lives and in the news. And sometimes we have a guest speaker to kind of prompt us. But the approach we take there is that um, behind everyone's belief, everyone's attitude, there's a story. And uh, as to why or how they got to be the the way they are. And so what I suggest is when people start getting really uptight uh, about the topic of race, so they they get angry or they get they start to think I'm trying to make them feel guilty or uh, they just deny, deny, deny that they're racist. Um, Instead of trying to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong, um, I I suggest well, tell me how you came to feel that way or how you came to see things that way. What's the story? In other words, I'm, I'm probing for the story behind whatever their attitude or, or behavior is. And, and then probing that story with, with questions that seek to draw it out. And 
part, there's two, two things I'm trying to do there. First is try to build a bridge because we can't have conversations if we don't have something to walk on. Right. And the second thing is to, by asking questions that seek to draw out the story to help the person hear themselves say what they're saying, because often the reasons they feel the way they do is because something happened, you know, maybe their mother told them something or something happened in school and, and they've never really reflected on, okay, well that happened. That doesn't mean all black people are that way or all Hispanic people are that way or all immigrants are that way. Um, and so it, it's a it's a it's a it's a tool to kind of help people think through why they f- think or feel the way they do, and it's not a quick fix method. Method. I mean, in the book, I say this may take several conversations. I mean, I'm in, I'm engaged right now in a number of ongoing <laughs> conversations, um, and 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 so it, it's it's a way of uh, entering into dialogue, affirming a, that a person has feelings. The feelings are real. You can't deny it. But then to get at where where is that stuff coming from? And is it as valid as you think it is? Because most people are not very reflective about why they feel the way they do about race. They just react. And right. I, That's really helpful. You know, um, as a person of color, I have to admit that what white people understand as overt racism, I have a slightly different experience with. So, like. I'm sure. <laughs> but it is. Direct confrontation can result in even more harm sometimes. Um, you say that dialogue and empathy are important parts in helping white people listen. And I really do think that you're talking to white peers. Primarily, yes. You know, but it, I mean, but you don't exclude people of color from having that conversation. Right. How do I, as a person of color, offer a listening ear in my empathy? to someone who is harming me when I don't have that in return or even like any ne- nece- there any hope of it in return, even do right. you feel me? Do you feel that like that, yeah. that tension yeah. that I might feel within my body? Sure. Sure. And it's one of the reasons I don't, uh, I focus on white people as I do. I have a number of um, friends and colleagues, you know, who are persons of color and many of them, uh, will say they don't feel it's their role, their responsibility to teach white people about racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tell me they're tired and angry. They're just sick of white people. They got to get away from white people. You know, they they work in predominantly white settings. They everywhere they go, they got to encounter these microaggressions and other things that people. And it's very wearing. It's very wearing. I mean, I I can only imagine in a, in an infinitesimal way what a person like yourself must go through on a daily basis in terms of just sort of pecking away at you, you know, doesn't even have to be a big thing. So uh, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend this for all people of color because I, I, I recognize that there's a whole other set of issues that they're dealing with that make what I'm suggesting very hard. On the other hand, there are, some BIPOC folks who really want to engage white people uh, in these conversations. They, I mean, I've met people kind of see this, their mission. I remember I had a, an adult student once, an African-American woman, totally who pur- purposely went to white churches because she saw that as part of her ministry, if you will. Um, and, 
and I, I applaud that. You know, I think one of the interesting things is one of, one of the hard things about the kind of conversations between whites I'm talking about is white people are much more willing to listen to persons of color and talk about race when black people are or brown people are in the room than just white people. Um, and, and yet they do so in a very, uh, what's the word, in, in lack, they don't really engage what the person is saying. But I, I would say to a BIPOC person, if you want to do that, go for it, but just realize you need to also take care of yourself um, because even white people can be really nasty, sometimes on purpose, often not even knowing what they're doing. Because we, you know, the thing is, white people have not been socialized into understanding what race is. This is not something, we never got the, the race talk. You know, we never got the, the talk from our parents about what happens to you when you go out on the street and you get stopped by a police mm -hmm. officer. These are not things that we had to deal with. And so we are grossly unprepared by our socialization for this. And, and so we do and say things without knowing it that can be just terrible and, oh. and hurtful. So I would just say to any person of color, just take care of yourself. That makes sense to me. Um, you know, and to be honest with you, it does pose challenges because I'm a pastor in a predominantly white church. I know, I know that. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's a, that's, that's that on its own is, you know, how do I, what expectations do I have for my own racial healing here? And, you know, how does it work? Circle of Hope is a super tight knit community too. So it even brings, even sending some boundaries can be challenging. Yeah. Um, sometimes people will say, and you address this late in your book, which is interesting, but because it's so common, but people talk about colorblindness. I don't see in color. Um, why is anti-racism not just not seeing in color? Well, um, <laughs> uh, I don't say, you know, we don't need to see color, but we've been socialized that color matters, right? That's right. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, when I was teaching the course on race and ethnic relations, it was always a, a mixed race course, very evenly uh, black and, and white and, and often Hispanic folks in the, in the room. And inevitably, there'd be a white person at some point along along the semester who would say, "I don't see color. I don't sure, see color." Sure. And, I, and, and I know, and I know what they mean is, I, I try not to judge people on the basis of color. That's what they mean. But usually, when they say that, I will I will sort of turn to um, the people of color in the room and I say, well, "Would any of you like to respond to that statement?" And inevitably. <clears throat> They would say, when you say you don't see color, you don't see me. Right. You don't see what it's like to be a person of color, be a black person, be a brown person, or be an Egyptian person, you know, mm -hmm. in this society. And, um, and, and so it's important that we see color, not because of the color, but because of what historically that has meant for people of color in this society. That makes so much sense to me. Um, and I really love the idea, like, if you don't see in color, you, you're not seeing me. You have a very relational approach to talking with white people. Mm -hmm. And you're sensitive to their guilt and to their shame and to their denial, specifically. Um, in my experience, so much of racism is institutional and systemic, though. So when we're dealing with 
systemic issues, you know, um, and I guess your book is really talking about white people specifically, you know, is the, how is the person, how is the personal approach effective when we're dealing with forces that are bigger than that? When so much, so little of the racism itself happens interpersonally. Um, well, I, I, I'm curious when you say how little of it happens interpersonally. I, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I guess I don't see, I see it at both levels. Yeah, I, see I think it, that's I fair. See, I, I see it at both levels. And and often the institutional expression of racism allows the interpersonal to happen. You know, it just justifies it. I mean, I, I right now I'm teaching a course in the state prison in Chester. And mm-hmm. we got into this discussion about institutional and interpersonal. And, you know, these guys talk about how the COs, the, in the, in the, the guards in there, treat them really badly. And, uh, and we, we, we explored that a little further. And, and so the institution allows that to happen. So the interpersonal and the institutional are, are uh, connected. Um, and I, so I think you can, I think you can deal with both. For instance, uh, I've done a lot of work on uh, um, uh, funding uh, for public education in the state of Pennsylvania, which is extremely racist, extremely biased. Um, and so I, I can imagine having a conversation with a, uh, a parent whose child goes to the Lower Marion School District, you know, the, one of the wealthiest, maybe the wealthiest school district in the whole state of Pennsylvania, and telling her that just a couple miles away is Overbrook High School in Philadelphia, where these kids get half uh, per the, the the allocation of money is half of what students in in um, Lower Marion get, and that can that can generate a tremendous amount of guilt. <laughs> totally. guilt is not guilt is not a bad thing, and I, I try to point this out when I talk about guilt because guilt sometimes causes us to stop and say, okay, maybe something needs to change, um, and and people will feel guilty, and I I, I don't. I don't deny that. The, the thing that's I think it's important when we're talking about institutional issues or how racism affects individuals of color is we keep the we keep the light on, we keep the focus on the impact of racism, not on the guilt. What often happens, you know, when these conversations come up, people say, Oh, you're making me feel guilty. And all of a sudden, all the white people in the room want to say, okay, well, no, we're not trying to make you feel you're a good person. You're the, we're, we're, we'll take care of you. And this, the issue that prompted the whole discussion, whether it's how an individual is treated or how an institution treats people, gets lost. Uh, we do have to deal with our guilt, but we also have to keep the focus on the fact that there is something wrong in this, desperately wrong in this society, that three miles away, two high schools exist, and there are totally different educational realities for the students in those two schools, simply because of race. Um, so often, I mean, often and other kind of institutional type issues, because as you say, because that's where it seems to be most evident. Um, but, you know, so I try to keep the balance between the institutional and the personal. I appreciate not- that. This is helpful in, in talking about this next idea about impact versus intent. Um, because someone feels guilty and all of a sudden we're focusing on their feelings, you know, it, uh, sometimes people have good intentions. I think most white people do. 
um, their impact is different. And so when that harm happens in public, you say, let's, let's naming that harm is helpful. And the point is not to shame or blame somebody, but to help them understand why the misunderstanding and hurt has occurred. I appreciate that. I've, I've done that myself. So have many of my friends, but so often shame and guilt follow. And a lot of Christian sensibility and white sensibility is to like focus real a lot on making sure that this person doesn't feel badly at all. And there's no more focus on the harm done. Um, So what happens when we get caught in this cycle in an organization in an interpersonal relationship? Yeah. You know, I think one of the, one of the expressions of whiteness that I didn't mention is a kind of perfectionism about this whole issue, especially among people who want to be anti-racist you know, white people who really want to do the right thing. And when we do something or say something that has a negative impact, we can easily fall apart. And I, you know, I can, I can speak from personal experience where I've done or said things and, Oh my God, the shame is just overwhelming. So, uh, and I, and I, I kind of go back to what I just said. I think we do have to need, need to deal, deal with the shame. Um, but we also don't want to lose focus on what the impact was. Uh, I, I can think of a particular incident where unintentionally I said something in a class that was very hurtful to a couple of African-American mm. women in the class. And they, they were courageous enough after the class to let me know how what I had said had hurt them. And it was totally unintentional. I ended up actually talking to a, a, a woman who was a, a pastor and actually going through a, a kind of confession sort of thing, even though she wasn't Catholic and I wasn't Catholic. I mean, because, and, and, and you know, as, I, as I've reflected on that experience, and it happened many years ago, I, um, what, what stands out to me was, you know, again, kind of going back to the impact of centuries of racism and how I inherited stuff from my ancestors, how deeply, deeply I struggled with that. So I do, I do think uh, shame, you know, does come, guilt does come, um, but it can be, and it ultimately was for me in this instance, a learning experience. You know, I, I often tell people, uh, the reason I'm so smart is I make a lot of mistakes and I learn from them. You know, it's not that I'm perfect, but that I've learned through doing things, being called out in a loving way, or sometimes not, but being called out uh, and and learning from it. And I think that's that's how we grow in this whole area of becoming uh, a true uh, ally or co-conspirator with people Absolutely. of color in their, in their struggle against uh, racism in our society. I appreciated you saying that when it comes to white liberals, and you said white people just who are who really want to do the right thing, who want to be anti-racist, you seem to be like, yeah, when, when it comes to confronting them, um, I guess because maybe they're like along the way a little bit more, the confrontation can be more direct. Um, and it seems to be like, yeah, when you're a partner with me in this work, my confrontation may be more direct. Is that on purpose in your in your writing? Do you treat so-called white liberals in a different way than you might someone who is like really not along their way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, um, um, 
I would say to white people who really are on this journey to find persons of color who are willing to hold you accountable. And it can be an informal sort of thing, it can be more formal. One of the decisions I made probably 15 years ago is I thought I looked at, uh, you know, volunteer stuff that I was doing, activist stuff I was doing. And I said, I want to only be involved in organizations that have significant leadership of people of color, which has been a, you know, has put me in a situation where folks, as they've gotten to know me, know that they can tell me, uh, you know, Drake, that was not, that was not kosher. That was not good. And, and I learned by that. So I do think that there is a place, particularly for uh, what we're calling white liberals, um, uh, to be held accountable. The problem with the I have this I have this chapter on white liberals because interestingly, some of the harshest criticism I've gotten from white people are from white liberals because there's this sort of sense in which, hey, listen, I'm a I'm a good white person. You know, I I say the right things. I read the right books. I do the right things. Um, and often we don't realize white what we who are white and liberal, white progressive, whatever you want to call us, uh, don't realize that often we assume we know more about the experience of people of color than we really do, and we we in some ways um, make them feel like we aren't they aren't being heard. Um, there's a there's a there's actually a there's a, there's a quote in the book I have, and I, I'm not going to get it. Uh, Right. But, uh, you know, an older gentleman who grew up in the segregated South, he said, I'd much rather deal with that guy than the, seg- the racist in the South than the white liberal, because at least I know where he stands. Sure. <laughs> and and uh, and uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy right now about wokeism. And I think what happened was a lot of white people got all worked up about George Floyd and uh, marches and stuff in 2020. And then they went home. And it's like they it, nothing happened. And people are saying, I thought you were with me. You're not. You're not here. You know, when are you going to be here in the tough times? And um, and I think that's where uh, what we're calling white liberals really have to always be um, conscious of. That's not just saying saying the right thing or reading the right book. It's 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 a lifestyle. Absolutely. I love your call against to, for relentlessness in the face of racism to interrupt overt racism. But I have to say, I mean, more subtle forms of racism have led to overt racism. I think we've seen that in the U.S., you know. Um, and this is my own political analysis, but, like, I think that we tolerated subtle forms of racism um, for a long time. And then all of a sudden we have a white nationalist president. And all of a sudden in Christianity, and you might be familiar with this, there's like defenses of white nationalism. It's not even, there's nothing subtle about it. Like this is, you know, white supremacy, um, you know, fundamentally. Um, and so like part of me, like I, 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 uh, I wonder about if interrupting overt racism, and I, I understand why we do it in the moment because it is so harmful. Um but I'm, I, I wonder how, how, how do we stop from getting to that point? What could we have done? Is there anything we could have done? Like you, I mean, you, you wrote the book and then the insurrection happened, you know, like the worst thing happened 
you know, in a sense, it's, it's, and, and we haven't learned, you know, it was Charlottesville in 2017. And then all of a sudden, those people who were marching in Charlottesville are now invading the Capitol. Yeah. And the president is saying, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I, I, I confess that even though I was part of groups that were preparing for Trump to deny the election and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we had meetings about how would we respond to a coup and all this sort of stuff. And we had plans to go to D.C. And, you know, when January 6th happened, I was just blown away. Um, I and and the fact that there are so many uh, Republican politicians who, you know, on the day said one thing and now are saying something totally different. And, uh, you know, the. I did not see that coming. Now, as a person of color, you probably said, yeah, I see that all the time. So I was still, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was shocked. I was watching it. I was watching just the, the count, you know, when they were confirming the electoral college votes. And then all of a sudden the Capitol is breached. I was shocked. I still remember that moment. I mean, I, I witnessed it live. I couldn't believe it. They rushed all the senators out. You know, it was, it was, it was very Shocking to me. Yeah. And, you know, of course, all the denials and all the rationalizations since then are just, you know, making it worse. You know, I, I think, you know, since, you know, as I said, the book came out like two weeks after January 6th. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, um, there's a whole lot more that needs to be done. And I, I was asked the other day. Um, I was talking to actually a spiritual advisor and my spiritual advisor and I was, we were talking about these issues and um, I, I mentioned a particular person um, who I knew who was uh, a strong Christian nationalist, pro-Trumper kind of thing, MAGA Republican. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, how would you influence this person? And I said, I don't know that I can influence the person, but I, what I'm committed to is reduce minimizing his influence on others. And I, and I think we're in a we're in a really interesting space now, which is we're still learning as we go that, as you said, we can't tolerate things anymore because they, we see where they go. And we can't just say, oh, that's just so and so. We need to uh, be direct. We can be loving, but we need to be direct in terms of saying, no, that. We're not, we're not, we're not standing for that. We're not going to love for that. And, and, um, and, and I, I, the thing that I am grappling with now is how, how to develop a spirituality that gives me the fortitude and gives other people the fortitude to engage in that kind of ongoing direct, uh, address to racism in our society over the long haul because we didn't get here just by chance we it's been coming for a long time absolutely and, and it's going to take a long time uh to overcome it and absolutely you broke up there but i hope we still have your audio there i'm going to wrap it up with this one here let's I want, we want to follow you drick and what you're up to how do we keep up with what you're doing and what's the best way we can follow your work well i have a website with a blog drick boyd .org, backslash blog, um, and I've been, I've been writing a lot of, about the election and all that recently, but after, awesome. Christ, after Christmas, uh, I really want to uh, begin exploring 
a phrase that actually was given to me, uh, anti-racism is spiritual formation. What does that look like? How, how do we, how do we uh, use our contemplative and spiritual contemplative practices and spiritual disciplines to equip us uh, to engage in this anti-racist work? And I, I, you know, I've been I've been reading a lot of books, and I'm talking to a lot of people. Um, and whatever I come up with will just be my reporting and what others have done. But it's awesome. Um, uh, that to me is kind of where my own growth is just at this point. Well, we'll link your blog, we'll link your book, and we'll keep up with you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, great. Thanks you again for having me. Yeah, take care. We're wrapping up this episode with uh, things that have nourished our soul this over this past week, and we share that with each other and with you, hoping that um, it will help you attend to what is nourishing to you. Um, maybe even pause to look for that. Um, so let's pause here, pastors, before we wrap up and uh, share a little bit about what's been nourishing to you. Well, this is very unoriginal, but Advent has been nourishing my soul. Um, specifically, the the slowing down and preparation um, that I have thankfully been able to do this year um, right away. I always wanted to like get the tree up right after Thanksgiving, and I for some reason I was never able to accomplish that before but this year um i was determined to try and it was so wonderful to that's right awesome after, that you did that <laughs> thanks johnny yep we even went to a tree farm you know on the way back from seeing the extended families and um you know brought it home with mm -hmm. us from thanksgiving and made the advent wreath and like it, it just it was so it was such a great feeling to like show up for worship on the first Sunday of Advent, having already like taken time to reflect and prepare in my own home and you know set up the nativity scene without the baby Jesus in there. so we're we're consciously waiting for the whole season together. Mm. Um, so i'm I'm embracing that waiting and and that longing this year. I'm reading a book called The Poet X, and it's by Elizabeth Acevedo. Familiar with this book? It won tons of awards, has tons of critical acclaim mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, and this poetry, this book of poetry that kind of tells the story is really, it's really beautiful writing and impacted me quite a bit already. Um, and, you know, I, I will say it is such a, it's, it's a significant shift from what I'm usually reading um, and I, I appreciate enjoying the fiction a lot um, and you know just impressive by the impressed by the talent of the writer too so yeah I recommend that to you it's been nourishing my soul mm. poetry my high school daughter is reading or has read that did so you read it I heard about it through her I haven't read it no. oh, that's so cool um Something that nourished my soul this week very uh, tangibly was an Advent gift. 
Um, shout out to Tess Patino. She created this beautiful um, wrap shawl that she ooh crochet crocheted. I think. Oh, I'm gonna get this wrong. Forgive me, Tess, and all those out there who mm. crochet or knit. I always forget the difference, but um, she's been creating this um, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and um, gifted it to me this week. Dropped it off at my house with a little note. Um, surrounding something, I think is just so beautiful about her practice of doing this is that she prays as she creates and um in her note she just said i i hope i pray that you are wrapped in warmth and prayer with this gift um and it just it came on a day that i needed it Mm. you know it was Mm. it was so comforting to literally wrap myself with this and sit down by my tree um and just receive the gift that it was to be thought of and cared for and um just appreciate the beauty of her craft. So I hope you all find something that nourishes your soul this week. Um, if you haven't gotten into Advent yet, it is not too late. Mm-hmm. You haven't missed, you know, missed the boat. Um, every moment is an opportunity to pause and um, consider that we're we're moving somewhere here. We're we're journeying together towards um hope and i hope that you can join us in that in some way this week maybe even at one of our sunday meetings thanks all for listening until next time